Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. You're listening to Java Chats with Dr. Sandy, your personal brew of life with a teaspoon of medicine. Real women, real life, real chats. Hello, all, and welcome back to another edition of Java Chats with Dr. Sandy. For today's episode, no, not in my family, I have invited a mom to the show. But aside from a mom, which is a big hat to wear, my guest, Sharon Montgomery, is a best-selling author and business storyteller. Sharon helps her clients write solid stories for everything from website content to memoirs, breaking down barriers around tough or complicated topics. And that's where the show comes in. After all, the show is about real women, real chats in real life. Sharon is the co-author of the Amazon best-selling book, Leaving Drugs and Alcohol Addictions for Good. The book, a bestseller, is a hit in the world of recovery, and her stories have been featured in books, magazines, and websites around the world. She works with nonprofit businesses, raising awareness. Sharon lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband of 29 years and is an avid container gardener. As I said, Sharon is here today sharing her story as a mother, a mother of a son named Lauren, who dealt with and continues to deal with drug addiction and recovery. She's not an expert at drug recovery nor addiction medicine. She's an expert on her son and how drug use, abuse, addiction, and recovery impacts her whole family. This is a very important topic because parents may think that this will never happen to my child. No, not my child. I'm not addicted to drugs or use drugs, and my child will not either. Never, right? Yet again, we learn the hard way to never say never. We also know that addiction is a real medical diagnosis requiring multidisciplinary treatment programs. It is not a willpower issue. It is not only for the weak and beleaguered and can affect at any point in time. In my practice, I have dealt with many patients who have struggled with addiction to drugs, alcohol, tobacco, prescription painkillers, and other forms as well. But this is Sharon's story and her family's journey. Welcome, Sharon, to the show, and thank you for bringing your story to the forefront. Thanks for having me, Sandy. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And lots to discuss here. So let's start at the beginning. And with respect to your story and your son in particular, tell us a little bit about your son's childhood. Let's start at the beginning. How would you describe your child then and his personality? Lauren was a firecracker from the day he was born, basically. He, he, he was a performer and he was athletically gifted. He was charming. He was fun, but he was always moving around. He couldn't stay still and um, he, he couldn't really leave things as they were for good or for <laughs> bad outcomes, I guess. But um, people gravitated towards him from the beginning and he was he usually found himself in a bit of mischief, but we couldn't stay mad at him. And sometimes I would just tear my hair out in frustration I because I just loved him and, and he was so full of energy. As Lauren got older, what, what do you think were some of the changes in his life that may have led to the use of drugs? Was it, was it peer pressure? At, at what point did that start happening? I've thought a lot about this because uh, it, it 
it's way easier for me to just go, where did I go wrong? What did I do, you know, to stop it? And then it won't happen. But I would say that, that, you know, we did have changes in our family life that may have contributed to the use of drugs. Um, But at the time, I didn't see any connection. So pressures of church life or being good at the time, it was all about being good or striving to be good. It was all the time. So, you know, we'd have a swear jar at home or be part of a culture of what would Jesus do or, you know, WWJD or whatever. Um, There was just constant pressure to be seen as good while taking any questions, problems or shortcomings as a weakness. And and we kind of dealt with it underground or or with someone else who who didn't maybe he didn't want to disappoint he always wanted to be good. So being a disappointment, not being perfect, having shortcomings um, are, are probably some of the things that, that weighed heavily on him. And um, I, it did on all of us. But one of the best things we ever did was to get honest and authentic about our, our human experience as a family in this world. And so we threw out the swear jar, embraced loving ourselves and others where we are and just kind of as we are with those healthy boundaries instead. But but I got to tell you, it was a long, jagged, <laughs> weird road to reality. When did your son start using drugs of any type? What what age do you think it all started? As far as I can tell, he started experimenting probably just before high school. So so somewhere in, in the end of middle school area, um, he just kind of started questioning and and exercising his freedom, I would say, as an older kid, you know, the the why this. And I think that naturally led to him trying cigarettes, um, alcohol, weed. Yeah, I I think it was right around that time when he he started exerting his, uh, you know, I need to find out for myself stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was probably around when he was uh, 13, 14 years old. Yeah, Yeah, so much younger than I thought. Just, I mean, it's insane, but I I remember that time of the curiosity and the what what is it that we're guarding against? You know, let's Mm -hmm. take a look. Right. What is it that we might be missing out on and and all and all that? Yes. Um, Everybody mentions the word gateway. Was there a gateway drug that he was introduced to or that he started out with that led to others? Tell (laughs) tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the first things I asked him. What was your gateway drug? It's a super tough question to answer because I don't necessarily believe in gateway drugs like I used to. I mean, it's a very simplistic thing to say, yep, here's the gateway drug, you know, but Mm -hmm. that's not how it is. And so that's what I used to believe, though, before, you know, that addiction journey kind of busted through our beliefs. But Lawrence started with a potentially milder drug. Um, I don't know that it was milder, but it was probably more socially acceptable. Okay, so cigarettes, alcohol, but the gateway part um, of becoming addicted, in my opinion, was Lauren being curious or in pain, um, you know, being hushed up about it, or, or we don't talk about it. And, you know, he wanted to know. And, and because us as parents weren't as dialed into his struggle, he hid his needs. Um, which was his curiosity or anxiety or or pain relief because he didn't want to bother us or disappoint us or alarm us as parents. The thing is, I, I truly feel that kids, they're curious, but they also love us and they, they don't want to disappoint. Like I, I said, he, they don't want to hurt us. So the gateway 
I think, was that he felt he needed to go somewhere else to try and find a solution to his problems. He tried a chemical or two and between, you know, positive feedback from his social circle and the positive reactions in his, his mind and body, he learned that he could take a break from his problems. And I'm so glad that you actually redefined the word gateway because we hear about it, to your point, that's the, that's the sort of that buzzword. We hear about it in the media, in the literature, the gateway this and gateway that. So parents are always holding on to, I think, to that one particular thing. And if I get rid of that thing, all, all the issues are gone. It's not necessarily that because like you mentioned, the gateway is not just a substance, but it, it can also be an experience, a feeling, a state of mind. And, and, and that's so true. In retrospect, what were some of the warning signs, or, or maybe there were none? I um, mean, you know, sometimes we kick ourselves as parents for not seeing potential warning signs, but, but sometimes also we may not be ready to see them, or even the, um, the uh, person using drugs may, may not even be aware of potential warning signs for themselves. Again, I, I think you, you nailed it right there, that it wasn't a particular drug at the time. It was the fragile situation that was created around him. It's almost normalized or it's not talked about how fragile that age is, how fragile the the situation is that, that delves into um, kids at this age wanting to do their own problem solving and curiosity, but, but we're not dialed in so much. So as far as the warning signs, um, they were mainly in his behavior, I would say. Um, so, so like going from that open, funny, insightful personality and um, just uh, carefree attitude in his life. And he went to a guarded, a suspicious personality, which Again, I just chalked up to, oh, this is the age. This is teenagers have it hard. And, you know, that's the, I, I dismissed it. But his friend circle changed. His, his cleanliness habits went downhill. And it, it felt like he dimmed himself to accept his new habits. And um, that was a big red flag. The more we, we pushed him to be transparent with us, the more, you know, he lied or diminished or, or looked elsewhere to, to get a to get us off his back. What was difficult for me was that, well, just what I said, it, it just was so easy to say, to, to chalk it up to uh, teens, oh, this, oh, that, and, and normalize it when every mom instinct that I had was screaming, there's something wrong, there's something more because of those warning signs. What things were done, though, to see if he was using drugs? Was his room checked, uh, his urine uh, tested, or was he just very good at hiding all this, too? Because that happens as well. (laughs) Well, I would say yes to all. So Mm -hmm. we checked his room. Um, We had, um, you know, urine tests as part of the deal that he stayed with us for a while. You know, it wasn't all put into place right off the bat because we didn't know. They were all stages of, oh, what about this? What about this? Okay. Um, And yes, he was very good at hiding use. Looking back, like the way I approached checking on him was, was incredibly ineffective. For one thing, like he didn't need to hide a lot of the drug paraphernalia because he knew that I didn't know enough about drugs or alcohol to be effective at finding any of his tools or drugs. I was looking for, I didn't know what at the time, right? But um, I, I, I didn't know what to look for. So I thought everything was suspicious. And 
and and that wasn't fair <laughs> either. But I was going on emotion. He was going on hiding. So I didn't know where he would possibly t- stash drugs. So I'd toss his room just to find out years later that, you know, he had them in the garage or the ceiling tiles in the basement. I, I had all of the suspicion, but none of the education, which made me a prime candidate to be a witch hunter. And that self-reflection is really hard to do when we're parenting and we're trying to help other people. It's really hard for that self-reflection. And he and, and the other thing was he wasn't ready to reach out for help. That is a key part. He wasn't ready to open up. He wasn't he wasn't in that part of his journey. Uh, exactly. The the reaching out part, which is which is a two-way street. And like you said, it is, it is, it is very hard. It's like we have to become educated as this situation happens. And if you don't know what you're looking for, or sometimes as parents too, if you, if you find something that you don't want to find, it's tough (laughs) because then you have to do something about it as a parent, but it's tough because also coming to the realization of, Wow, I can't believe this is happening to me too. So it's it's a it's a, it's really tough on the family. This is not just an issue that affects the child, the teenager, the adult uh, using and abusing uh, substances. It affects everybody else around them. And you mentioned that he had started with cigarettes and marijuana and alcohol. What would you say or do you know what his drug of choice was or what it became and, and why? I think that's a really uh, valid question in that uh, his choice ended up being methamphetamines, meth. Although he told me later that every uh, addict, every addicted person refers to their own choice of chemical as dope. So my assumption was that dope was weed. It was marijuana. Um, he counted on that lack of education and experience to help hide the scope of his habit. Um, he's not happy about it. He's not proud of that part, but it was where right. he was. Right. He, he needed to hide it, needed to diminish it and uh, from himself as well as from me. And um, we assumed we knew all we needed to know about addiction by staying away from drugs and alcohol. And that was a perfect storm. No, again, it goes back to like, no, not in my family. No, this is not happening. Uh, you know, we, he has his family to come to and to uh, seek solace in. Why, sh- why does he need all these other things, right? Um, right. And it, you mentioned amphetamine. How did he get access to this drug or what form of methamphetamines uh, did he use? I'm not clear about what form he used. However, what I do know, just going back to what what we ju- what you were just talking about, is the vocabulary disconnect was huge. It's not we learned lots of stuff in school. Don't use drugs. Don't do this. You know that the sex education stuff was for me in my community, um, and and in, in many communities it was about abstinence. We don't talk about it. We don't. It's dirty, or we you know you wait till marriage, whatever. There. And and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bring up you know uh, religious beliefs or anything. What I will say though is that this part of we don't look at it, we don't talk about it, just don't do it, fed into not only my lack of education, um, but but my ability to talk 
effectively to my son about it, whether it's sex, whether it's work, whether it's any addiction, um, which is which goes over and above the, you know, just uh, the the not socially acceptable addictions. Um, I was so all I all I told my son really about sex was don't 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 have don't get pregnant you know this this was a hard road for me when I you know I I started my life early because of, of getting pregnant and so that was my personal focus as a parent was don't do this what can I do to make sure my kids blah 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 mm-hmm. and, and I just figured that the don't do drugs thing it fit in the same thing it fit in. We don't do it because it's bad. And that is not true. Kids are brilliant at this age. Really? But we have ibuprofen in the, in the medicine co- closet. We have exactly. situations where I've seen you take, you know, so it's not that simplistic. And so I, I will answer your question. You said, you know, who supplied these? How did he get access? Oh, my gosh. I wish that it would have. It, it was just as simple as what I thought which was access. So I just learned that accessing drugs is no longer based on the idea that you walk to a corner and there's a, a guy in a you know, trench coat that says, hey, want some drugs? Or you don't go to a shady part of town or to a shady person. It's completely incorrect. Everyone and anyone can access drugs um, where, wherever, they, wherever they want. We're brilliant people. But this is why education is so important, not to shunt it away, but to talk about it. Um, to answer your question, Lauren's first contact, getting his, his drug of choice, his hard drug, was his boss. Oh, my gosh. Over his new job, who insinuated that in order for Lauren to work the long hours he was assigned, he had to have a little help from, from what he mentioned to my son. So Lauren was 19. I'm just, and I found out about this later, clearly, because if I would have known, there would have been it. Anyway, uh, Lauren was 19, but I wasn't there when he was told that he couldn't keep up. If he couldn't keep up with his like brutal schedule at work, there were lots of other people who would do his job. So he was already set up to do this and he was pressured by his boss. But the point is there are a hundred opportunities that regularly um, should be a safe place, but because he's vulnerable, he wanted to make a good impression. He didn't want to dis- disappoint us. He was young. He needed the job. He needed money. He felt that he was sol- solving his problem without having to be seen as a failure or not being able to cut it in the real world. And um, so he was he was given um, the opportunity to, to do a favor every once in a while to keep getting access to meth. And he was maybe told to transport something or do something if he wanted more. And again, he didn't ask what he was part of and it didn't last long, but it was long enough that it's one of his biggest regrets and biggest drives to do life differently. And the truth is it ended with him getting beaten and stabbed and in the ICU for eight days. I hope I'm not being too graphic about it, but this this is the brutality of addiction. This is the brutality of parents and educators not educating, not looking at the hard, in the hard places to truly help our kids and to help ourselves. And so 
I mean, it brought terror to his sense of safety. He was questioned by the police. And we were afraid. Um, it was a hefty cost all the way around for just wanting to say, hey, don't do drugs. And we don't talk about it and we don't do it. Wow. That is an important um message for people and parents and teens uh, to yeah. uh, hear and to understand. And as a parent, uh, this is, uh, this is terrifying. His boss, uh, this is, yeah. this is awful and, and criminal. Yeah. I will say this, what I hope and, and from the stories that I, that I hear about parents who have read the book and are having these hard conversations they're not dead at the end. They're not husks and shells of, and betrayers of their religion or their upbringing or anything else. It, they come out of this conversation healthier, closer, more connected to their kids because their kids know that their adults, their parents can handle their world. But it's a, it's a tricky thing to get to that. I'm glad you said that because that, again, uh, sort of should have uh, relieving that guilt that sometimes we carry with us, that things are supposed to be a certain way and that they don't have to be that way. Uh, They could be a better way in order to reach uh, a healthier state overall. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Going back to the amphetamine use, how did this drug make him feel and and what that other's uh, drug or drug choices could not make him feel? Well... That's another tricky question. And and again, I don't speak for Lauren, but we've had a lot of conversations. And, and this was one thing that um, well, I was so glad he educated me on this because it's from his perspective, right? But as addictions and highs, they're not a switch to flip on and off. And they're also not a destination that you just get to. Um, it started off as a euphoric feeling for him from an ability to do everything that he wanted to do without being tired, without being anxious, without being depressed. He loved going fast and getting things done. He was in the moment. um, And his attitude was kinder and fun because he had energy and felt good and, and wasn't feeling blame, shame, guilt, any of those things. He was just being. And so I, I saw the opposite. I, you know, when he told me that he was, using when he was at his happiest and high, you know, those were the times when I thought that we were connecting that I thought, Oh, he must've stopped doing drugs or, you know, whatever it was, but it was the opposite. Um, so I'm saying that because later he, he realized that he needed more of uh, his drug to, to get more of the same feeling. But then after that, 
he was just chasing the early memory of what it used to be like. It never was the same as that first high, that first hit. And it became a necessity just to get to zero, to, to where he was in the beginning anymore. It was just being able to get up, just being able to move or to, um, to look normal to himself. And that's the hook. That's, that's the hook is that people never get the same high. We don't get the same high. I remember the first time I tried hot chocolate. I promise you, I'll never have that same amazing look on my face. Right. Who has that? You know, right. And, right. and that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, the, the hook you mentioned, the, the, it's, it's, it's the feeling, the chase, the constant chase. It's, it's that never-ending cycle. It, that's where the biochemical changes start uh, at, the, at, at, at the receptor level. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to throw in a little biology yep. here, it's all about upregulation of uh, receptors as well. And so that's where the biochemistry uh, starts changing in the body. What we may not be aware of internally, that's actually happening. That actually becomes a real thing. This is why addiction is a medical diagnosis. It's not just, oh, uh, you know, they'll get over it. Uh, they're, they're just doing it for the fun of it. Uh, they, they can stop cold turkey. It's a real biochemical change in a person's body. So moving forward, when when did Lauren realize himself that he had an addiction? How did he come to this conclusion? Well, that's the million dollar question. That was the million dollar question for me. Um, when did he realize it? And and it, just like us looking at our own addictions, exercise, coffee, sex, work, uh, TV, food, gossip, nobody thinks they're addicted, right? I can That's stop right. at any time, right? Because That's he right. didn't he didn't look like some other um, you know addicts, junkies, people who were far farther further down the road. He didn't look like that. So be, so in his mind, Lauren wasn't an addict. He wasn't homeless. He uh, could function in society compared to other people that he knew. Um, he went to the, with the same assumptions that we had in the beginning. He didn't look like someone with a problem, so he didn't actually have a problem with addiction. Um, he didn't... He. He didn't realize he was addicted until he'd gone through therapy with several people, been stabbed, was in the hospital, went out of town to recover, uh, went through a recovery program and relapsed, and then realized that his own choices and habits were keeping him from spending time with his family. How old was he when he finally realized he had an addiction? I would say about four years ago. So, yeah, probably when he was... 22, 23. Yeah. Yeah. So this was, this was about a 10 year period in his life from the first time he started at the age of 13, 14. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's a journey. It's just this long winding journey that I wasn't in charge of his journey. And that was my journey is realizing that um, I'm, I'm not in charge of his destiny and his life. I can help. I can love. I can support. I can have my own boundaries and, and help, you know, remind him of his boundaries. But he is, it was his own journey. His own recovery, his own, his own relapses. And then also coming to the realization that 
these choices, these habits were, were actually keeping him from spending time with his family uh, that, that yeah. he was losing. He was losing grip, perhaps, of all the things that were more important to him. And I imagine that accountability uh, coming to the, to the point of accountability was, was probably sick. And maybe he was just tired of all the consequences, perhaps. Perhaps. Um, uh, so this was another little, um, what do you call it, like a grenade. It was like a, just a little blind spot that I had, which was, why don't you just stop? What, you know, um, the assumption is that when you come to the realization that it's hurting yourself, it's hurting others, there's consequences, things like that. The assumption is that you'll stop. And some people do. Some people, you know, they, they, they white knuckle it. But it's not the same as there's so many things that wind up. It's it's not just one thing. So, um, you know, did he try to quit? Did, you know, what happened? When did he decide there was enough? When he decided it was enough, there were several reasons that wind up at the same time. And the lining up and the timing of everything was key. Uh, and his accountable was his accountability was key. That was a hard one for me to figure out was that, why don't you just stop? No. Um, it was a huge thing to to realize that so much of what I truly felt I had down pat. I'm a mom of four kids and I got this, you know, and I had to really reevaluate and I had help doing it. The best thing I ever did was getting help. But, uh, you know, he, for him, what happened to, to, that it was enough was enough was that he, he you're right he was sick and tired of the consequences that went with addiction um the lies and the covering up and the excuses uh, he was the only one he was fooling in the end and, and he came to that realization um, also he was accountable and ready to work his specific program so he lapsed and relapsed a few times um which can be part of true recovery it, it just is but then he became accountable and ready to move forward and learn from it. And that's when the relapses stopped. The other thing is that he reached out to get help. So I wasn't pushing it on him. He received the right kind of help and continued support. That was the other thing. He kept himself accountable through the detoxing and the sobriety stage and set healthy boundaries with himself and others. And here's another thing he was humbled. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm going through a bunch of stuff, but those things are big deals to line up at the same time. None of those things when, when he was doing it by himself was the key because there wasn't a key. There was a, so many things that lined up. Just him getting humbled. He was humbled when he got stabbed and went into the hospital. That's right. pretty humbling. Right. Um, he reached out to get help once, but he wanted to pick and choose his what he took from it. You know, do you, am I making sense that way? Yes, abs absolutely. I mean, these are the things that have to line up. And these are the things that parents have to hear because it's not just one thing. Right. It's not just one event. It is, uh, it, if it, if it wasn't just one thing that led to drug use or abuse, it is not just one thing or one event that leads to uh, not doing it anymore or the recovery process. And there is another part of it. Um, if I can just mention and, and that is that somewhere along the way from him being funny, great, awesome kid, grew up, he was my buddy, he was my partner, to this um, 
grumpy, lying, you know, I'm pulling my hair out, seeing somewhere along the line, I forgot that he was trying so hard. He was trying to quit. He wanted to. He had so many times he didn't want this. He had a desire to not disappoint you. All of that stuff, the wanting to be good, wanting to be better, wanting to make something of himself, all of those things, that stuff didn't go away. I forgot about that. I forgot. I thought he was just a a kid that didn't care anymore. He was some boomerang kid that just had to come back over and over again. We had failed. You know, I made it about me when I forgot that he was still this strong guy trying to solve a problem. So he, he'd abstain from it. He'd come clean. He'd make promises to himself never to go back many times. But his. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Willpower wasn't the only thing that was needed. And it's the same story for anything with an, you know, with anyone with an addiction, whether we're addicted to work or chemical or food or anything else. It's a mindset first, sure, but success is backed up with the support and a solid method. And and Lauren wanted to quit by himself so he could just handle it without bothering us or letting know letting us know he was failing. But that perception, you know, just choose to stop it. It, it in, unintentionally reinforced that he was a failure for not having enough willpower. And that is a huge deal. It's a really crappy, inaccurate assessment. And um, it's something that we all have to be really careful about because we can perpetuate that stereotype so easily. You had talked about, you know, the and I absolutely feel the same, that it's not just addicted or not. There is use. There's abuse. There's addiction, there's recovery, there's sobriety. There are a lot of different stages that go into it. But once a person goes from abusing a chemical to being addicted, their mental, uh, their emotional, and their physical needs change. Uh, Like you said, the biochemical aspect, um, getting high becomes a medical biochemical issue for them to function, like using food or water or air is for us. and. There's actual pain and the the physical systems change, much like with someone with um, dementia or diabetes. It's an actual physical change and it morphs into an illness of the mind. You mentioned the word mindset, and that's an important word because that's something that we can't give to someone. We have to sit back, sometimes wait until it develops. It's um, Lauren had to come to this decision himself. He had to come to this mindset himself that he was ready for a change. Uh, Is that that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, For him, 
he told me that it was his family that kind of was his motivation. And I'm, I'm really well aware, um, Sandy, that, that not everybody has family as a motivation to get back to. Not, not everybody does, but that was his motivation. And, and I think finding a motivation is, is part of that key. Yeah. And you also mentioned something about uh, the old stereotypes coming up um, where, yes, you would go cold turkey and white knuckle it and all this and 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 not and not having a good understanding of the physiological changes that addictive drugs can actually cause chemically and structurally in the brain and the body. And, and, and again, I say this is this is this is where it's an interdisciplinary approach. It's uh, you, you, you have to look at the psychological, you have to look at the medical, you have to look at at the person, you have to look at where they're at at that particular um, point in life, like like any diagnosis. Um, and there's definitely more research and education that has to be done. And uh, yes, I mean there's there's been significant scientific literature that backs the physiological uh, changes that are seen in substance abuse. So. That stereotype sort of needs to really go away <laughs> because I think in, in my mind, at least it delays, it delays treatment. It delays a person's future. It does. And, uh, but, but the, that's, I think that's the good news about this part too. If we can flip it around and make it about um, being on the same team, it, it's mm-hmm. us against addiction it's the addiction community about and and getting educated instead of it being such an isolation oh this is your problem this is your thing it that's that's how it happened in our family for a little while it was why don't you just fix it this is your issue these are your consequences i'm not doing it anymore but we were part of the problem our community was part of the problem and um as long as we're making addiction a moral, ethical, or success choice, it was very um, lonely for all of us. And that's part of the education is, um, you know, with use and and even abuse, there's opportunities to step away from it. You know, uh, once addiction is happening, it becomes an illness like, like cancer. But in society, is still touted as something to overcome by sheer will or faith or other willpower only nonsense um, tactics, you know, willpower only. These things can help, but they're not the only reason a person comes back from addiction through sobriety and into long-term recovery. So um, a person can be sober for years or decades and still be just hanging on by a thread because it's what they should do. But it's not fixing it. It's not addressing those situations, right? And mm-hmm. and it's not recovery. It's just called being a dry drunk or being sober. And it's a really dangerous, vulnerable point. And so the good news is that with education, we can change that perception, but we have to come together to do that and talk about the hard stuff. Exactly. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, joining forces uh, with uh, everybody uh, that's involved in the recovery uh, is important. And it's not us versus them, us versus the person abusing. It's, this is, this is a joint, this is a joint thing. This involves, it's sort of like, it takes a village. 
Yeah. Uh, well, yes, it takes it takes a village. Uh, this is a very very hard thing, and and we and you mentioned being vulnerable. All of us can be in that stage, in that phase. It it doesn't happen just to the next door neighbor. It doesn't happen just to the kid down the street. All of us could at any point in our lives be addicted to something. Uh, you know, the whole opioid crisis, you know, <laughs> about right. in terms of painkillers after surgical procedures. Uh, you know, you don't mean to become addicted because you're in pain and the pain is legitimate, but your body starts reacting a certain way and then you're always chasing that particular feeling. So, yes, I, I totally agree with you and hear you on that. Um, tell us about his relapses what 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 happened because you you mentioned he had also multiple relapses okay um so and again it's this is his story and so i don't i don't really know all of his relapses or lapses and 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 that's a it's a different uh those are two different things a lapse is when um there's a mess up you know, you use or you're around the wrong person, there's a trigger and it happens. And then you get back, you know, then you get back to your program, you're transparent, you're able to, um, to continue your help on your program, and you just keep going and you just go, Oh, I just did that. And it happened. And it's just a lapse. A relapse is that is directly from my experience, not an expert, um, directly about the self-loathing, the shame and the guilt. Oh, I already started. I already messed up. I already did this. Um, and, and so so that's kind of what happened with Lauren. And so we had to come to terms with the difference between a lapse and a relapse. And so in terms of the relapse, um, the, the, the last time that I know that he relapsed, he found a little packet of his stuff in the pocket of his shorts. It had been over six months that he'd been sober and was on his road to recovery, but he found it when he was sorting through some clothes and he wanted to prove to himself that he was cured. Hey, I, he said, I just wanted to know that I was, I was fixed. I'd gone into sobriety. I'd gone, I'd started my recovery. I, I can look at this and, and it would be just fine. So he decided to try it to prove to himself that he wasn't an addict anymore. Looking back, though, he said that just that need to prove anything should have been his red flag moment that he wasn't cured. He didn't have it handled um, because relapse or um, going back to that being triggered, it's always one use away. Um, right. But he, he needed to prove it to himself is what he said. Then, because at this point he had enough knowledge. He knew steps of his program. He knew what he needed to do. And so his high, what he said, mom, it was the worst high I've ever had. <laughs> he said it was the worst. I was tainted. I knew what I was doing wasn't working for me and I didn't want it. And so it was a horrible high. He tried it again and again to break through. <laughs> and Cause I did mention he's stubborn, right? So, um, <laughs> But those things were steeped in shame and guilt, and it wasn't the same at all. But his brain didn't care. His brain did what it took to get the drug back into a system. And then he kept going because he'd always ruined, he, he said he'd already ruined his sobriety. And, and he let that run for a little while. 
And looking back, he knew he could treat it as a lapse. You know, he just it happened once and then you get back right on your program. But he continued to guilt himself into a relapse. And, uh, and, and that lasted a, a bit longer until we found out. That's, that was my perspective. That was. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Blech. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. New. I didn't know what it was like to relapse, but he said, yeah, it was, it was dark and it was filled with guilt. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the distinction between a lapse and a relapse, uh, because these distinctions and these and the and and the and knowing the terminology and the meaning of these things is important because it helps us identify the stages as well. And in terms of and it helps the the person using and abusing identify them as well too. I mean, this it's it's not it's it's not the same though they are connected. And things can progress. So at what point or at what particular stage uh, was he at when he thought he might want to not use anymore? Well, uh, again, he, he went back to his journey ended up with the basic question of, do I want to stay away from my family? Do I, do I want to isolate anymore? I'm, I'm doing this by myself, but my family's not, you know, they, they believe in me. They love me. They haven't cut me out of their life. They've connected with. And I think when he realized that he, he could have this secret or shameful thing that he thought was inside him, you know, when he, when he could deal with this was happening and it's okay to talk with my parents about it or my family about it. They're not going to condemn me for it. He, he wanted more time with family. And it's like I said, it, it's not always like that. But for us, it was. And it was kind of a trigger for him. Um, he had a really that low point in his life where he got lonely. It was a holiday and he was alone. So he had been for weeks after going on this bender. And while he was using, he couldn't live with us. So that was one of our boundaries was that we'd still talk to him. We'd still love on him. We'd, we'd go see him for coffee or, or grab some lunch or, or um, just go say hi and give him a hug. But he couldn't live with us. And so his shame and guilt weighed on him, but he got humble and asked for help. Um, and But this time it was for him. It wasn't for us. It wasn't for God, for the community, for anyone else. It's because he wanted to do life differently and knew he couldn't do it by himself. So he was parked up the street from our house on Halloween <laughs> the one um, that night and watched the kids going up to the lawn to trick or treat at the front door, pre-COVID, of course. Right. Um, right. <laughs> he could see my husband and me in there with his sister. We were playing card games and just, 
you know, handing out candy. And he realized he missed his family. That's what he told me. He realized he missed his family and home more than he missed getting high. He realized that he did this consequence to himself and that he could change because we'd happy to we'd be happy to see him like truly happy um, when he wasn't using. But he knew that he needed help for himself because he wanted to be around his family again. So this was a pretty low point in his life. You you mentioned that he was uh, stabbed. Uh, you mentioned that uh, he tried to uh, sober up. You thought probably at that point he had gone probably through the lowest point for himself. But but no, he he almost needed to get to the point where he felt alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that he he came to the realization himself of the things that he was missing out as if as if he's looking in from the outside. It's quite a realization for him. It's it's heavy for him. It's yeah. uh, and he's at this point. You said he's sober now, recovering for the last four years. So he was eighteen, nineteen at the time. Uh, he was in his early twenties at okay. this. Point. And um, yeah, it was a super low point. Just like you said, he, I thought that getting stabbed or living in another state or going to rehab or other stuff would be the low point for him. It was for me, you know, but I was making it around me. But for him, his low point was he felt alone. He grew up being involved with people and loving people and talking to people and he was alone and he missed it he didn't he was homeless but he had a car uh he didn't have a job again because he just lost his last job for no call no show again and he he just saw that as a pointless part and there's so many teens so many people just in the united states alone we're not even talking worldwide who are struggling with the same thing, who are feeling so alone, who are feeling like they don't have a choice, like they're feeling like my friend is my drug, my drug is my friend. That, you know, that they don't, Lauren had a supportive family. There are so many people out there who don't even have that. That is so sad, truly. Okay, so so let's talk about that sad part. That was, it, it was super sad for him. And my mantra at the time was, we have to take care of him. We have to, we have to deal with his consequences because otherwise he'll be homeless and he'll die in a gutter. So that was my worst case scenario, right? Mm-hmm. You die alone. And, and I think that was his too, except that, What changed is, yes, he had a family, but I will tell you right now, people that don't have a family that are supportive, people that don't have a family at all, and they're looking, this community that we're all part of already is with this education, we can be their family. We can be with healthy boundaries, with accountability, and with, with, um, support and steps, uh, that's great. But also that connection, it doesn't just have to be from family, we can be that family of inclusiveness and that community that understands and, and helps them. And and that's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about that. Inclusive, 
they're they're not to be thrown away. And I know that all families are not perfect. Oh gosh, mine isn't perfect. None of us are perfect. N- there's no there's no perfect no. family. No, there's <laughs> no, no matter perfect, where you live. But, but connection, transparency, honesty, and accountability are a perfect connection for someone struggling. And it doesn't it doesn't matter what the addiction is. It's the same recipe, connection. But our system currently is about isolating, shame, send them to prison, send them to jail, get them out of our hair. We don't like it. Da, da, da. But what helped Lauren was the opposite, was kindness, compassionate, inclusion, connection, love, hope, not throwing them away. And that's what we all need as human beings. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> that's what we all need. Without all those things, it's really tough. Um, and so, uh, again, I'm, I'm so glad that you're talking about all this because some of us may think, oh, no, it happens to other people. But no, those other people are living in our community. They're part of our lives. They're part of our world. And we should extend that hand, too. We should embrace it. We should we should help each other out. I mean, there's just there's just a basic humanity to this. Absolutely, there is there is humanity in inclusion. Now, you know, I'm saying all this, but this is real talk. I was still ticked at him. I was still exhausted. Our family was still exhausted and did not want to go through this. It's not that. Um, everything was fine and perfect. I was so mad at him sometimes. I was so mad at myself and each other. We all had short fuses, but we learned. And the biggest part was accepting that this is happening. Let's get to work instead of this is not my problem. This is, this happens to other people. And it's a simple concept. I get it. You know, we, we hear it all the time. There's memes about it and there's social media and signs and and happy little things, but it is so true. And um, it's a key part of long-term recovery is that inclusion and love, even when it's tough. Yes. Even, even when it's tough, it's not that you turn your back and say no. And, and it's also tough for the person recovering too, to having to uh, understand also the feelings of those others that surround him, you know, the, the hurt, the pain, because again, it's, it's a two way street and coming to understanding and processing all that. It's, it's definitely a, uh, I would imagine a two way street in terms of rebuilding those bridges that may have been burnt, rebuilding those relationships. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, it's no, it's no small thing that the treatment that he received was not just about, you know, talk therapy and releasing those, you know, on education, but it was the biochemical aspect, the biochemical restoration part um, of looking um, to, to help him in his whole body, the whole experience of, of his body and his mind, his soul. Uh, not just stop doing it. You mentioned the that he transitioned to treatment. And by that time, he had gone to several lapses and relapses. And things were hard on him. He had gone through a period of homelessness, of sort of 
knowing that he was isolating himself from the things that he wanted most in life, his family, um, his future. Um, he had, from what you described, a lot of shame and blame. That was probably a very big component. But how did he finally decide to get treatment? Was it that he just decided, okay, this is it. I'm going to go into a treatment that's going to work for me. Or was it through others? How did um, he finally uh, progress to that stage? Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that makes, that makes sense. Um, that at some point when he goes through, whether it was, you know, for himself or others, uh, that's part of the journey as well. He, he first went to treatment because we wanted him to, and that was a journey to get him to do it in the first place. Right. He, you know, lots of people have, um, court mandates sometimes to go to treatment or they're guilted or they feel responsible for their people they take care of or whatever they go for other people. So we didn't think so because he wanted to go for himself, but he really did go first because we wanted him to. He loved us and and we thought it was important or whatever. So his therapist suggested it and we suggest it. And then honestly, the law suggested it. So he did it to prove that he was ready but it didn't stick as he needed it to until his mindset shifted. Um, and he wanted it for himself more than he wanted to please or impress us. And um, the treatment that helped the most, I would say, was, um, was treating that whole body, mind, soul. When I, when I was frantically looking uh, for how to help my son, I uh, came across uh, this this kind of treatment that was biochemical restoration, which was a series of um, science-based tests and um, methods to to test for the root of what's wrong. You know, he had anxiety, he had racing thoughts, he had depression, he wasn't eating healthy food, a host of like biochemically driven triggers were happening. Um, but even before it ever started, before there was ever addiction, he had that solution that that he needed to or that problem that he needed to solve. Right. He was anxious. He had some some thing. He was curious, but then he was anxious and depressed. And and so he had those things going on from before his addiction. But then also through his journey, he had biochemically driven triggers. And so being able to see those issues that were medical, not moral or willpower driven was very eye-opening uh, to both of us, to Lauren, to, to my family. And knowing that he was depleted in things, in nutrients, he was depleted in um, just a lot of different nutrients because of his, uh, like his eating habits, his stress levels. And so being able to test for that and, and how to, to keep cravings from happening or too hard that was eye-opening too, and it allowed him to ask for help, to trust the treatments, and to and, and it kind of empowered himself all at the same time. So it was he, he; it wasn't something that was happening to him. He was part of his solution. So for for our listeners who are not familiar with biochem biochemical restoration and the treatment of addiction, tell us a little bit more about that particular methodology. How does this treatment say differ from from others? And again, not a, not an expert, not a spokesperson for anything. Just right, right. What I've learned, but um, 
biochemical restoration, and by extension, um, holistic healing as part of a treatment methodology is the that key to whole body recovery. The long-term recovery comes from healing all aspects of our lives that have been depleted from addiction and the life that addiction supports. So being able to heal not just the habit of using a drug, but to heal the mind, the body, the soul, and the relationships and environments that um, that created the situation in the first place is key. That's part of it. Taking the judgment out of it and adding treatments based on science-based solutions, it brings a solid, uh, a workable plan. And then using or building a support system, whether it's family or um, a family that you've made a support system to keep going is what um, day by day builds a different result, which is long-term recovery. And that's what biochemical restoration is about. Not sobriety, but long-term, deep at the cellular level and and environmental um, support for long-term recovery. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, and from what I read about biomedical restoration, it, it, it looks at the whole person's emotional, the physical, the nutritional aspects, looking at coenzyme supplementation, as well as that whole mind-body connection, because we're... It, the whole body is involved. It's not just the brain. It's not just uh, a particular part. It's the it's it's the entire body that is affected. So I'm I'm glad that Lauren found a treatment program that has worked for him. Would 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 you have any uh, any information on success rates of this particular program or relapses? And there and there are several programs. One being uh, the Inner Balance Health Center. Right. Um, yeah. And, and although I'm not a, a spokesperson for, you know, Interbalance Health Center here in Colorado, um, I, I will let you know again about what I researched, what I've experienced and what I've what I've seen. So because there's so much fluidity as to what success is, it's a challenge to get numbers. I, I don't want to dodge anything, but I'll, I'll tell you in as a writer, when I was writing this book, I was it was a challenge to get numbers from from across the nation, let alone the world. But this is how I'll define success rate, in my opinion, based on my experience and research. These are the numbers at the time that I went through this experience. So success is defined by both the person going through it and their loved ones or support system um, and outside source. So one, uh, the addicted person's success um, is based while in the program, following it, learning, becoming the, the first and strongest um, advocate of their recovery. And then two, successfully following their program when out of the facility for a year or longer. So, so those are, are two things that I kind of based it on. And from what I've seen and researched, most treatment facilities have less than a 15% success rate of continued, meaning more than a year of sobriety, which is wow. horrifying to me. <laughs> horrifying. Yes. In traditional centers uh, that you know that 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 aren't practicing um, the holistic kind of mindset or methodology, um, that means 80, up to 85% of people are relapsing within a year. So using an integrative approach in centers with biochemical restoration as the goal and using all the support 
tools available, staying in touch, um, and following through with supplements, success, you know, just, just to the, the success rate becomes upwards of 65%. And that's again, using a one year measuring mark. And that is a huge difference. That was, that was what made me look further into it. And ultimately it was why Lauren went with this approach when he could, I mean, he's, he's an adult, he could have used anything, but he agreed with this. Hmm. Those statistics are encouraging. And, and, and again, not every treatment is a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not every treatment is for everyone. Uh, The person has to probably find the treatment that works best for themselves. But those are good statistics. Uh, You had mentioned, uh, I mean, earlier that uh, that he was uh, stabbed and that he uh, may have been involved with uh, doing favors. Uh, He was Lauren ever convicted? No. So. Okay. So he he wasn't convicted of anything. He he cooperated with police, and it was it, it didn't go on for a long time. But um, I, I will tell you this though, it was it was devastating to him. And once he was sober and in that reflective part of his life of recovery, I mean that's that's a lot that that haunts him is how low he got to to be able to be part of something that was so destructive. And so, yeah, it was, um, he was, I won't even call it lucky. He was fortunate not to be in the system because he was able to, he learned and that he just, he wasn't on that path as long as it could have been. So I think that's truly what helped him from staying out of the system. It's just the, the length of time. I can't imagine anything else because what he did. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Blech. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! (sighs) Smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. And and what he was a part of was so risky and so... It was was horrifying to to talk about and to hear about for him and for me. Right. And the reason I asked is because you mentioned that less than 15% success rate uh, of typical programs within a year. I can, I, I, I I would imagine the, the statistics are even less than that for anyone who goes to jail because jail time is not recovery. Jail time is not treatment. It's punitive. It doesn't address the issue. Yeah. It's, Oh, girl, you just, you just hit on that. Uh, That prison isn't a solution. It is a red flag. It is, it is definitely a symptom of the larger issue, which is, I don't know how to deal with it. I just, 
I'm busy in my life or I'm in pain in my life. And so we just need to put people out of sight, out of mind until whatever for a determined set of time. It does not fix them. It doesn't help them. It's the ultimate bin to throw someone away. I'm not saying there isn't a place for prison. Um, there are people who make choices uh, based on cognizant, they, they choose. But when a person is addicted, when they are on that cusp of addiction with, with severe abuse, it goes back to that connection. To, there are other resources, um, but it starts with a mindset. And so you're right, the prison is, is this hold all. And then they come out and everything is stacked against them so that it goes right back to that shame, guilt, um, blame. It's personal. It's moral. It's a character thing. And it's it's stacked against them. So mm. it's a, a disservice uh, that we do to people who are struggling with addiction. Luckily, Lauren was not part of that system, but he to your point, he could have been, any one of mm-hmm. us could potentially be part Ooh. of a system that none of us think we're ever going to be part of. So right. I'm, I'm glad for you. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad for Lauren uh, that, that he was not, but it just sheds light on so many people that are, and just uh, being a, just uh, the importance of being aware of all this and and what it all what it all means. So Lauren found or or he was introduced to this program that seems to have worked. But just going back to the program, what mm-hmm. is it um, particularly about this particular program that is working? And is it and it's working for Lauren so far? Correct. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. So. Um- so again, I'm not a spokesperson. I know I keep saying it, but I'm not privy to the to the specifics, uh, all of the specifics. And honestly, I wouldn't share what is a really individually based program. I wouldn't try to um, make it vague or general because each person is different. But I do know that Lauren had that lab work and testing done. He had a nutritionist and counselors and doctors, therapists, all working on his case um, meeting together to come up with an ongoing program that helped Lauren to heal his body and his mind over time. Then they implemented it on day one with Lauren. Uh, they used several tools and workshops to educate him and his support system, which was us, you know, family and friends, about effective, healthy habits and, and boundaries, right along with exploring uh, what factors contributed to the root cause of his addiction in the first place. And so they didn't just provide education for him. They provided it for us, which was honestly, it was, it was the, the biggest thing for us. We were a very traditionally minded, very look the other way or take care of your stuff kind of. So, so moving that to the education was a huge, huge deal. Um, so they also provided that one year of follow-up check-ins and support as well. So, and we utilized this really heavily as uh, the first year is the hardest work. So for some people, the first year is everything. They, they, it's, it's something that the, if their only job is to stay sober and to feel what it feels like to be sober, that is a full-time job. 
is the hardest work, then it becomes maintaining. But this part's crucial. And what I can say confidently is that this level of attention and and detail went for everybody that that went to the um, facility as well to the center. So very much a multidisciplinary approach. It's not uh, just one discipline. It's many coming together. And again, I, I actually, I, I'm a rehabilitation specialist uh, um, working with uh, patients who sustain life el- you know, life-altering uh, events, spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, and so on. Uh, so it's always, for me, it's always, again, that multidisciplinary approach. It's not just to one doctor. It's not just one therapist. It's not just, but the patient, I think the, the best way to recover is the patient being in the, the patient client being in the middle, the patient client being the one in control and the one in, you know, deciding, mm-hmm. you know, that what is going to work, not work, and how are things going to uh, proceed um, it's, it's having that power and that control back because I imagine, and, and I don't know, Lauren can answer this best than me, obviously, is <laughs> that when you start using, abusing drugs, you're giving your sense of control. It's not that you're, you're volitionally giving it. It just happens. You're, it, that, that control is, is, is sort of dissipating away. Right. And that's that's the hard part. That is the hard part. And when we're ill, when we have a devastating illness, whatever it is, whether it's a stroke, uh, whether, you know, whatever it is, it's that loss of control. And with people start having that loss of control, it's very, very hard. It's very hard emotionally. It's very hard physically. So I'm glad that he found a program that utilizes that multidisciplinary approach that makes him the one in charge. He's the most important person there. Mm, <laughs> so, absolutely. And so that that is that is that is actually really really good. And you mentioned that he's he's in recovery, that he's doing great and what a great accomplishment. Kudos to Lauren, kudos to the family. That is an amazing amazing accomplishment. How how does he feel? What's and what's and what's he doing now? Thanks for asking. Yeah, it's it's over three years now on, on Halloween. So it's a great start. Um, so he will be the first to say it's not done. Recovery isn't isn't something that you just mark off and and, and check. Um, but he feels empowered, not cocky. Um, but he's seen enough and been through enough scenarios that the pull isn't the same as it was. It's it's still there. He never says it goes away, but he's doing his best and he is empowered. He's he is in control of his situation and he knows it and he has tools for that. Um he he's aware of how easy it is to become run down, fatigued, or what would put him at a greater risk of a lapse or a relapse. And he guards against that. Um He's currently in a good paying position. He lives with his fiance and they do a lot of living life in suburbia. <laughs> He's become a, a kind, responsible, fun guy again, but with some depth and experience and humility behind it. Um, I'm, I'm proud of him, if you can't tell. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know Lauren and, and I'm proud of him because this, oh. is such, this is such a success story. And It did not come easy, but it did come and it's still a continuing success story. 
So my kudos to him and to everyone involved in his uh, ongoing recovery. And as, as, as a parent, what, what advice would you give to moms and parents that are in similar situations and, and listening to this uh, podcast today? Oh, wow. Um, my best advice <laughs> is this. Uh, your child wants to solve his or her problem. They, they want to. They want you to be proud of them. They want you um, to be proud of them and they want to be proud of themselves. So they want to show the world that they can solve problems just like we do. But just like we tend to do, they also get tired, exhausted from the fight. So when a solution to their weariness comes up, their pain comes up, anyone in that state of mind can experience, can experiment with a shortcut to get relief. So they're not bad. The kids are not bad. They're not lost. They're not beyond hope. Even when their behavior just stinks, they're not bad. They're not lost. Neither is your situation. So do not give up. Get educated. Get educated. Look at the tough places to get educated. I know it's uncomfortable, but we're the adults. We're we're the ones that want to protect our kids. And part of the protecting is knowing. So looking away, hoping things will get better is not enough. They're too smart. They're too curious, just like we were. So giving the message that it's up to your own child to find their own answers because it's too hard or appalling of a topic for us to broach is um, a terrible way to help make the education on tough topics a family matter because it is and they need education and encouragement and love just as much as you do this is a journey together you're both educating yourselves he is, he or she is, you are as parents, it's okay to learn. And the, the last thing that I will say about um, some advice, if I could give you one set of advice is that it's not something that goes away. Uh, addiction isn't something that goes away easily or quickly. And so stop looking for quick and easy answers. Quick, just stop it. The sooner you as parents accept that it's happening, um, and and that the sooner that you can work on your own assumptions and shortcuts that you're using to survive or to just deal with it, the, the sooner you can start with the solutions. Don't deal with it. Address it and then learn and implement those healthy boundaries for yourself because you matter too, but also for them. They, they need those boundaries so they know how to be in charge of their lives and you, they know that you're in charge of your life. And this is imperative to us loved ones. Um, it, it's as imperative to us as loved ones as it is to the addicted individual. That is great, honest, down-to-earth advice. <laughs> that is uh, thank you uh, for sharing it. Then that's uh, from one mom to another. So thank you. <laughs> Um, what, what advice do you think your son Lauren would give to teens and, (laughs) and also to the parents of teens, because you're the mom giving advice to, uh, the rest of us, but his perspective, what would he say if he were talking to me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I won't speak on Lauren's behalf, but. I've heard him talk to teens and other people about addiction. So um, 
and he has a, he has a soft place in his heart for teens. The main thing is, he said before, um, that being in control of your addiction is, uh, I'll just say BS. So there is no balancing addiction. You, you can't balance it. It's not, oh, this time it'll be fine. There's no being fine after just one high. There is no one stopping. Um, you don't just stop with one anything because it's never just one anything. It's an addiction. And addiction dictates when you're too weak to keep fighting a craving or too tired to to do anything to stay sober. It hits when you're tired, when you're fighting a craving, when things are hard at home or on your own. That's when it hits. And he said, there's no shame in getting help and doing things differently. It's not a moral thing. It's just learning new information. And as teens, we're, we're part of being a teen is just learning new information. There's no shame in it at all. And the other thing that he has said is that they're not alone ever. They don't have to be. If it's not your family that's the support system, it's someone else. Find someone. And then he connects with them and he listens as they talk. And, you know, he's not a professional in the recovery field, but he is a part of the addiction community, just like you are and just like I am. But, he, you know, he can pass them along to someone who is, but he doesn't speak on behalf of anyone else except for himself and an experience and only when he's asked. But I think that's why when people talk to him, when teens ask him, they listen to what he says because it's, it's heartfelt. It's, he's not, he doesn't get a toaster for mentioning, you know, how he got, how he got sober and, and clean. It's just from his, his responsibility and his love and passion as a member of the community. And it's so, it's so good that he's able to talk about it. It's so good that he's able mm -hmm. to share his story to others and empower others that they're not alone and to demonstrate that there is um, another way, there is the there is recovery. You, you don't have to go through the same path. You, you I mean you may, but there are options, and that other people have um, sort of discovered those ways already. They've they've done they've done that hard work, <laughs> and and that um, it doesn't have to be so hard. It, life doesn't have to be so hard. You know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, at, you know, and that is important for a teen, for a parent to hear that it's not all dark, that there's no solution. There's a solution. And that, that is, um, that's important. That is an important message uh, for today's teens. <laughs> it's a big deal for them to be part of their own solution and that, um, there is, there is help, there is hope. And uh, e even if you don't currently have a support system, or you don't currently have education about this, you can, because there's a whole community just just wanting to include and to educate and to help. So Sharon, you, you have been so candid about your son's experience and your experience as a mother. I, I could only imagine how scary and uncertain things may have felt. Uh, but you being here today and speaking with us today about your journey and your son's journey is so impactful. 
and can certainly help many families in need. So I, I thank you for sharing the story with us, for dispelling some of those misconceptions surrounding drug addiction, which there are many. And, and yes, using drugs and addiction can happen in any of our families. None of us are immune. Uh, we don't have to live with the shame, the guilt, uh, the, 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 just the overwhelming feeling that uh, there's uh, no uh, other way. So, um, the, and, and you mentioned something very important, which is that mind, mindset shift for all, which is, <laughs> which is key, which is, which is um, without that mindset shift, it's, it's hard to move forward. I, I really, truly, from the bottom of my heart, wish continued success in Lauren's recovery, which, again, we mentioned is a lifelong process. I'm proud of him. And as, an, as a fellow mom, Sharon, I'm proud of you and your family, because this is not just Lauren's recovery and Lauren's journey. It's yours as well and your family's as well. So thank, thank you. you. And, and thank you for spending time with us today. This was really impactful and a powerful message. You are welcome. It was my pleasure. I, I love being able to, to talk about this with you. So thank you. Thank you. And, and before you go, Sharon, a uh, question I ask everyone, <laughs> what beverage do you enjoy drinking and why? <laughs> you know, it's Java Chats. <laughs> it is Java Chats. Uh, so I will tell you, I love a good cup of tea. Preferably with cream and sugar uh, and scones and friends and food. But it Yum. starts with, <laughs> right, the, the whole English English tea ritual is delightful. But it, but that's what it is. It starts with a good cup of tea, black with cream and sugar, or a nice herbal infusion on a cold day. Um, it's about the ritual, taking the time to let it steep, then prepare it. Um, it just lets me take a few moments to slow down and enjoy the moment. Exactly. And, and yes, you're right. Rituals, rituals are important and enjoying the moment, taking a few moments, a few minutes every day to relax and refresh is a good idea for everyone. So I'm with you on that. But you know, it's funny. Uh, so many of my guests, the majority of my guests have said that they prefer to drink tea. So maybe <laughs> I should just call this thing tea time with Dr. Sandy instead. <laughs> it's all my mm -hmm. guests are tea drinkers. I must find a guest who's a coffee drinker. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, you're right. Yeah. I hear that there's a good cup of coffee out there somewhere. <laughs> There is a good cup of coffee out there somewhere. So thank you. Thank you for joining us and, and for helping us understand your son's struggle with addiction and his journey to a healthier life. So appreciated. And if any of you struggle with addiction in any form, you know that help is available. Stick, speak with your healthcare provider, ask questions, seek the help you need. You are not alone in this and you don't have to be. So thank you for listening. Always truly appreciated. And until next time. And if you like what you hear, uh, send a like on my Instagram or Facebook and share this very impactful, very important story. So thank you to Sharon and thank you to Lauren. Thank you for listening. Always truly appreciated. Until next time. Thank 
you for choosing Java Chats with Dr. Sandy as your personal brew. Real women, real life, real chats. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.